Hope you're enjoying all of our podcast episodes so far. If you want to connect with the thousands of other listeners, then join our private Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast, and I'll be the first one that shows up. Thanks again for listening. Fantasy is a lot more fun until you start spending money. They need to piss off as few people as possible in the process. But the people who spin the fantasies make more money than I do. What I just depicted was not blowing sunshine up your skirt. I appreciate you coming on and you getting back pretty quick. Just from what I can remember, I think I came across your website probably like 15 years ago. And I've always thought about it whenever I bought real estate books and checked on it. So it was very helpful when I was looking at it. So I, th- I thought you had a good way to look at those type of real estate guys. And just thanks for putting that up. Yeah, I would have thought over the years I would have had more competition, but there's not a lot of people want to talk about the realistic aspects of it for some reason. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's why I always found yours fascinating. You know, whenever I Google about it, it yours would always be the, like the first thing to come up. But I guess people can live in fantasy sometimes and not look at the real thing. So well, fantasy is a lot more fun until you start spending money <laughs> right? Yeah. pursuing it. But the people who spend the fantasies make more money than I do. Right. So. Yeah. I understood. But you can sleep at night, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's more important to me personally as well. So one of my friends, John Beck, he got hit with a $350 million restitution order from Federal Trade Commission. I say he's my friend. He's my friend before he went into the uh, get rich quick infomercial business. Right. But he disappeared apparently because the bankruptcy court and all that were taking his money in. So you talk about sleeping well. I guess maybe he's sleeping well now, but it may be in Bora Bora or somewhere. Right. So, yeah. What's the point of that? If you have all the money, you can't go do what you want. <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe he can do what he wants, some South Pacific island, but I don't think he can uh, get involved with uh, the United States or Europe or places like that. Well, like I said, I appreciate you coming on. And I didn't know if you had any questions. I mean, I can give you a quick rundown as far as kind of what the idea is. The main audience is basically 22 to 35-ish who are starting their own companies or have already started it. We're just trying to give them the stories of successful people, what they've done, and what I guess you could pass on to them as far as your learning experience. Well, it's a smart thing for them to want to hear that, although I generally have the impression that uh, people that age don't think they can learn much from people my age. They're dead wrong. but And of course, it's, there are some who don't think that way. But I'm glad to talk to the ones who do realize that they can learn a lot from those of us who've done for 50 years what they're considering doing. Well, I kind of see that perception as far as like, I guess with the technology, they think they can Google everything. But I think it's coming around, at least at this point in time, once you start doing stuff in business or like stuff that you can't find out through the internet, that's when you realize like how someone's five, 10 years older than you who just their experiences in general, how much that is helpful, because you can't just Google everything and to get you through it, right? (laughs) Well, when people, there's a thing called fear of the record. When people write stuff down, they tend to become less forthcoming. Mm -hmm. I don't have that problem, but most people do. So in my book on how to write your own books, I said that if I and some similarly knowledgeable person had a uh, conversation about our uh, area of expertise, we would sound similar. But if you told us both to go write what we just talked about, what I would write would be a transcript of what we just said. The other guy, you wouldn't recognize it because he'd be afraid to say in writing all the things that he said 
in a private conversation. So we take out all the good stuff for fear somebody might not like it. There's sort of three aspects to getting for a person in their 20s or 30s getting advice from a guy my age. One is you got to watch out for personal taste. Some of what I think is correct is just my personal taste, and that would be true of anybody you talk to. Another thing is uh, people my age are sometimes out of date. However, most of life doesn't fall into those two categories. So the problem is thinking that because of those two categories that uh, we don't know anything that's quite incorrect. Could you give us like an example? Well, I was just talking yesterday. My wife and I still use checks. Our kids pay their bills with electronically. I think the paying them electronically has probably been proven now, tested adequately that the bugs were worked out because we tried it years ago and I didn't like how it was working. I think it's probably better now, but we just haven't gotten around to doing it. So that's out of date thing. So I might not be the big expert to go to on how you pay your bills by electronically. However, the basic aspects of real estate investment, all that, they stay the same over the decades. Right. And I guess kind of leading into that, how about we talk about your story and kind of where you're at today? And then we'll go ahead and talk about when you went to school, when you graduated and kind of how you got into what you do. Well, I got rid of all my properties in the uh, 90s. I was owning properties and writing about them. And increasingly, the writing took more time and the owning was becoming beyond the point of diminishing returns as far as learning from it. And then the properties were in the Texas when they had the savings and loan debacle. So that was, I fully participated in those losses. And by the way, you have a lot of real estate gurus say they never lost money in real estate. Well, they apparently haven't been doing it very long. And uh, saying you, you haven't lost money is like saying you took half the course and not the other half on how to be a real estate investor. You got to be around long enough to lose money to fully understand how this works. And now I just bought a rental property last Friday, actually, but my son is the tenant, my youngest son. So that won't be the full-born landlord business, hopefully, but in many respects, it's a, a rental property. We are tenant and common owners with him. And in effect, he pays rent. Technically, we're just going to have him pay the carrying costs. But to the extent that we own part of what he's paying the carrying costs on, that's technically rent. So I don't like having tenants and resident managers, no matter how careful you are screening them, you get troubles as a result of the occasional bad one. Like if you buy an apartment building, even if you're a great apart uh, tenant screener, you're going to get 30, 40 tenants coming with the building whom you did not screen. One of them sued me once for you know a year and a half or something. So at this point in my life, I don't need that stuff. I'm thinking about putting some money into a real estate investment trust, which is that you own the properties, but you're not going to be named as a defendant in the lawsuits. And you can own properties all over the country for even if you're only investing $100 or something because you can buy into a REIT fund. So that's the kind of stuff I'm doing now with the properties. We have three sons and we offered all three of them this tenant common deal, but uh, only one of them took us up on it. But as far as where I started, I went to West Point for college. And while I was there, I went on an internship for 30 days out in the real army, 101st Airborne Division, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And I was appalled by that 30 days. And I decided I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. So I figured what I do instead would kind of come to me. You know, the clouds would part and a ray of sun would shine down and a deep voice would tell me to be an orthodontist or something. But that didn't happen. So I got to my senior year of college, the beginning of senior year, 1967. I decided I better force a choice of what I'm going to do instead of the Army in order to get to work on it. And I had a five-year obligation after graduation to stay in the Army. So Army regulations did not allow you to have your own business, which is the way you get rich at a young age. Not guaranteed, but it allows you the possibility. So I was not allowed to have my own business. I was allowed to invest in stocks, and I was allowed to invest in real estate. 
actually, real estate investing is your own business, but the people in the army were not knowledgeable enough to realize that. So I was essentially forced into real estate by the army regulation that says you cannot have your own business, but you can own rental property. So I started reading about it in college, and then I read about it for another nine months. After I graduated from West Point, I was went through a series of Army schools, Ranger School, Jump School, Signal Officer School, Radio Officer School, Satellite Officer School, and that took about a year. During the Radio Officer School, on April 15th, 1969, I graduated from college in 68. April 15th, 1969, I bought my first duplex and eventually got up to where I own 53 units, I think. Mm-hmm. 25 in one building and 33 in the other. So that's 58. So I had 58 units. The 37 unit was a previous building, which at that time was the only building I owned. So I had 58 units and that's when the SNL debacle hit in Texas. How'd you get the 58 unit? Just to kind of focus on that first deal, if you don't mind. I bought a duplex, 16 Harvard Avenue, Collingswood, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Owned it for six years, I think. I paid 14000 20% down. I thought I had positive cash flow at the time. I now have a book called Best Practices for the Intelligent Real Estate Investor. It has a chapter on how to calculate your true return. My true return might have been uh, smaller positive cash flow, but it was okay. I bought it for 14. I sold it for 36 in about six years, I think. And I thought, boy, this is easy. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I said, I said it in print on a number of occasions, all you have to do to get rich in real estate is get your name on a deed. That turned out to be incorrect, but it's the kind of stupidity you hear out of people who just started and had beginner's luck. Mm-hmm. But I think about it. I put $2,800 down, 20% of 14000 and then I sold it for 36. So I turned 2800 down payment into uh, 26,000 of profit. Boy, this is cool. I got to do more of this. Later, I lost 750,000 in the Texas debacle. So it goes both ways. So what was the time period that we're talking about from that when you bought the first one to? Bought the first property, April 69. And I didn't buy any more until I got out of the army in 72. And then I started buying property as fast as I could buy it. I bought a triplex in 72. I bought a duplex in 73. My girlfriend, then, who now my wife, following my example, she bought a duplex in 72. I bought a 12 unit in 75. I bought a single family house with my girlfriend, now my wife, in 74. And they were all in southern New Jersey, suburbs of Philadelphia. And were you just taking the cash flow from before and using that to buy these other properties? It was a combination of appreciation, mostly savings from my work. I was an army officer for four years. Okay. So you're still in the army while you're doing that for... No, no, I bought one while I was in the army. Then when I got out, I immediately started buying the others. But the duplex, I think it's 426 Euclid Avenue in Haddonfield, New Jersey. That was VA, no money down. So you ask where I get the money to buy that. I didn't need any money to buy that. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. And then I think my triplex, I think I bought with 10% down private mortgage insurance. So anyway, I had savings from being in the army where I made pretty good salary. When I got out, I became a real estate agent where I made less initially because it takes a while to build that up. That was full commission. Plus my first six months, I sold condos. I sold 18 of them. I was their star salesman, but then the appraiser said they weren't worth what I sold them for. So they had to convert the condo into an apartment building and I got zero for six months, seven day a week work. Mm-hmm what the uh, people in the army call the cold, cruel world. Uh, that doesn't happen to you in the army, but it does happen to you in civilian life. But you also can get rich in civilian life. You can't in the army, really. So you're a sales agent for, I guess, up to that time and then... Two years. Okay. I had a plan. I wanted to be a salesman. 
for two years, a property manager for two years, working for other people, and a mortgage lender for two years. And I thought that six-year program would be good for making me a real estate investor. And it was a pretty good idea. I did the first half of it. I did two years as a real estate agent, and then I got a property manager job. But while during my first year of the property manager job, I applied to Harvard Business School and I got accepted. So I truncated my six-year program in the middle, two years being an agent, one year being a property manager. And then I went to Harvard Business School. And by that time, I was married. My wife was an FDIC bank examiner then. She also entered Harvard Business School in the class behind me after watching all the fun I was having the first year. When she graduated, she became a banker. So I figured, look, I managed my own properties for 20 years. I've managed somebody else's properties for one year. I was an agent for two years. I'm married to a banker. I don't think I need to do the other three years of this six-year program. And, and I got a Harvard MBA. So that was a very rock-solid education. I didn't think I needed much more of this uh, working for other people to learn the real estate business. And I, in retrospect, that was correct. So when you're getting out of Harvard, I mean, you still have those properties, correct? Yes. And all of them except the first one, which I had sold for 36000 after six years, which would have been uh, 75. So I entered Harvard Business School in 75. Actually, after I entered Harvard Business School, I bought the 12 unit. I took a day off from school to go down to Mount Holly, New Jersey to buy that building. I bought that for 102 and sold it for 132 two years later. Should we fast forward kind of, so after you get out of that Harvard MBA, are you, do you get another job? Or are you just still managing your properties and have enough cash flow from that? When I graduated from Harvard, it's a two-year program. My wife was finishing her first year. So we decided we wanted to live in uh, Northern California. So I would only talk to recruiters from Northern California. And I got recruited by Crocker Bank. And that's where I worked after graduation. I needed to work for somebody else in order to get our stuff moved from New Jersey to California and in order to pay the bills with my wife at Harvard, which is a big negative cash flow while you're there. You know, she worked during my first year. During my second year and her first year, nobody worked and we muddled through. I had cash flow from my apartments and also we went to the uh, financial aid lady late in that one year when we were both at students. Her name was Florence Galin, and her nickname at Harvard was Cash Flow. Mm -hmm. She gave us a little loan to tide us over until my graduation. While my wife was still in her second year, I arranged to exchange all of my New Jersey buildings for the one 36-unit building in Corsicana, Texas, tax-free exchange. Mm -hmm. So that was very time-consuming. It was kind of a part-time job for me. And also, in between my two years at Harvard, I became a real estate writer as a summer job. And that was I was now doing that almost full-time. You know, I would go back and forth from Boston to South Jersey to deal with the properties, but I would write. I had a portable electric typewriter, and I would write articles during that time. So I was earning a living as a writer about real estate investment. I had cash flow from the properties, some of which I had owned for some years at that point. I had the loan that I got from a bank during my first year after Harvard. I borrowed a loan from a bank to get us through the next couple of months before my wife graduated. So in my succeeding book, I said that in my life after the first year, I generally had more than one source of income. I have like four or five, six part-time jobs. And I listed them. I listed what my four or five part-time jobs were like every five years since I graduated from college. And I said, it's a kind of a good way to live. It sounds a little goofy, like you're a, a full-time temp, but it's a little diversification when you think about it. Yeah. Okay. And then my wife graduated 78 June out of Harvard, and she got recruited to Bank of America in the Bay Area, and that moved the rest of our stuff out here. And 
by then the property in Corsicana, a 36 unit that I turned into a 37 unit, that was cash flowing 35,000 a year, 36,000, I think. So that was, this, you keep asking me about cash flow. That would have been when I first had the significant positive cash flow. I want to tell you about Scott's Cheap Flights. It's a great new service that alerts subscribers when really cheap international flights pop up. A few recent examples, $392 round trip to Japan, $335 round trip to Ireland, and $294 round trip to Brazil. In episode 9 of Millionaire Interviews, Scott told me that in just two years, subscribers have saved an estimated $25 million off regular flight prices. And best of all, it's free to sign up. So go to scottscheapflights.com, sign up, and you'll never have to pay full price for flights again. So then you're out there and then you're able to eventually acquire some properties in Texas, even though you're in California? Well, that property that I just told you about was in Texas. Okay, that's the one that was in Texas. Where... I moved to California in June 77, mm-hmm. and I started looking for properties here because, you know, all things being equal, you're better off with local properties. But the property, the apartment buildings here were selling for 14 times gross. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's ridiculous. The houses here were ridiculous. We owned uh, houses that we lived in New Jersey in the uh, mid-70s were like in the 40s, $40,000. And out here, we started to look at houses, and they're showing us eighty. And it was the same house that we get in New Jersey for 40. So we insisted on looking at a $40,000 house. And the realtor said, well, here's where they are. I'm not going there with you. Right. <laughs> and we went, we were pushing the lock buttons down in the car. So they had the same sticker shock on apartment buildings, but not only in relation to how high the prices were, but in relation to how high the price of the building was in relation to the rents of the building, uh, which is a whole different thing than just having high prices. And I was, at the time, I rented an office on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. We lived on the cable car line up the hill from Fisherman's Wharf, and I rented an office at Fisherman's Wharf. And I would have lunch with the landlord. He was a real estate investor uh, from time to time. And I was complaining about the 14 times gross to buy apartment buildings in California in the San Francisco area. If you went a little farther out to like Sacramento or what they call the Central Valley, they were a little bit cheaper. It was like 10 times gross. So I said I was thinking of going to Denver to look for properties because these prices were were just absurd. And he said, well, if you're going to go that far, why don't you go to where the cheap properties really are, which is Texas? So I looked into it and he was correct. So I flew to Dallas and looked for properties there. And I bought the uh, Greenbrier Apartments in Corsicana, Texas. The gross income was $100,000 a year, 36 units. And the price was $400,000, four times gross. Mm -hmm. So by that time, I was not a stupid young investor. You know, a lot of people say you got to invest where you live. But if where you live is 14 times gross and Texas is four times gross, you got to be out of your mind to, to stay in uh, California. Now, I lost a lot of money going to Texas and I would have made more if I'd stayed in California, but I would have had to buy a much smaller building. And that's 2020 hindsight. So I acquired the building in Corsicana, Texas, 36 unit apartment complex, a great big square donut with a swimming pool in the middle and nice neighborhood. On that closing day, my wife was in Texas handling the closing, the acquisition of the apartment building. And I was in New Jersey and I had to go to five or six different closings at different title companies where I was getting rid of the triplex and the 12 plex and the single family house and a duplex in Haddon Heights and uh, all that stuff. But because it was a big 1031 exchange. Right. So then once I was in Dallas, Fort Worth, the equity, the $400,000 apartment building grew in value to where the realtor said it was worth 720, but I had to take back a mortgage. 
and I never take back mortgages. So I said, well, what would it sell for if I don't take back a mortgage? And they said, oh, you'd have to go down to 600 or something. So I ended up selling it for 660 all cash to mm -hmm. me. It was an interesting thing. The, my building in Corsicana, the managers there had been there forever since it was built. And they said, you know, the guy that built this built another one just like it in Paris, Texas. And I said, oh, yeah. And I listed it with Marcus and Millichap. They didn't even show it a single time. So when the listing expired, I sent a letter to the owners of the uh, Paris, Texas property saying, hey, I got a building I'm trying to sell. You already know the building well because you own a building built to the same plans. Your Paris, Texas building. Mine's in Corsicana. Here's what I want for it. Why don't you come take a look? And it was a low price because I knew I wasn't going to take back a mortgage. So they bought it. Okay. And, and by the way, they got foreclosed or they had to renegotiate the loan or something because of the savings loan debacle, which happened after that. I bought that building in 78 mm -hmm. and the Corsicana building. And then I deeded it in another exchange for two other buildings in Dallas-Fort Worth in 83. Right. Can you tell us when the um, savings and tax loan situation happened and how you ended up getting rid of those properties? The savings loan debacle started about a year after I bought the, acquired the two new buildings, what I called the Cottonwood Apartments in DeSoto, Texas, that was 25 units that I bought for 600000 Again, Texas prices. That was when I bought it, it was called the Fleur de Ville Apartments. It was French phrase. It was very hard to explain to people and they, everybody spelled it wrong. So I changed it to the Cottonwoods. Yeah. And on that same day, I also bought the Las Brisas apartment complex in Fort Worth, which was four eight unit buildings and a single family house in the middle where the manager lived and the office was, and that had a swimming pool. So, and I paid 835,000 for that. Everything was fine. I bought those in 83, October 83. Everything was fine for about a year with my buildings. Then the Fort Worth building started to plummet in rental market value and market value of the building because they're building a zillion apartments all around it, brand new. And they were charging rents that were so close to mine, I had to lower my rents because my building was uh, built in 1970 or something. Mm -hmm. So the SNL debacle started about a year after I acquired those two new buildings. I put 25% down on both of them, so they weren't that risky. But still, that's where I lost the $750,000 on those two buildings. Their value, both buildings plummeted in value by about two-thirds. Right. And the rents plummeted to where I had negative cash flow, 35000 a year negative cash flow, Fort Worth. And I deeded that to the lender, which was the uh, previous owner. And then I got, I wasn't doing so bad in the Cottonwoods and DeSoto, Texas, but then that got bad. So that was 35000 a year negative cash flow. And I had to keep it for several years because of when you deed a property to the lender, it's called in lieu of foreclosure, that's considered a sale for tax purposes. And the sale price is the amount of the loan. And if your basis is lower than that, which it was, because I had been exchanging since exchanging with properties that I had bought back in 73, 74. So I, my basis was those properties from back in 73, 74, minus all the depreciation I had claimed over the years. So if I had deeded the property in the Cottonwoods in DeSoto, if I had deeded that back as soon as I wanted to, to stop the negative cash flow, I would have had a huge capital gain to pay. And the fact that you don't have any sale proceeds to pay it with is not of any concern to the IRSs. So I was forced to own it another couple of years because they couldn't deduct the losses because of the uh, Tax Reform Act of 86. So the suspended losses were building up. And there came a point where the suspended losses amount equaled the capital gain. And then I deeded that to that lender from Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. Okay. So that was when I got out of 
being a landlord. And as I said, I just got back in last Friday. Nice. Well, so how many years were you out of the game then? 92 to last Friday. Yeah. I, I get a lot of crap about that from some people. They say, well, he hasn't done anything lately. Yeah, 25 years. Still the same thing. Like you said, when you're talking about real estate, I mean, like I said, I'm in the commercial real estate field and it was the same thing, the same concept, buying and leveraging and making sure that the money works when you have supply and demand. There have been some changes over my career. Condo conversion was really hot for a while and people made a lot of money at it. But then the tenants unions and all fought pretty hard against it. And it's kind of hard to do anymore. Mm-hmm. We just now lately are seeing uh, retail, department store type retail is suffering greatly as a result of uh, online sales. So that's a big change. We've got this driverless car thing coming. The biggest change in real estate in the 20th century was the car. Cars becoming mass produced and cheap and everybody owning them and the move to the suburbs. So that when my parents were uh, young, They worked in the city. They lived in the city. They didn't own a car. Their place of business was in the city. They commuted on mass transit and all that. That all went away. And that dramatically changed real estate. But the suburbs and the shopping centers and industrial buildings out in the suburbs and office buildings in the suburbs and and the cities becoming blighted to a large extent. So that was a big deal. The driverless car is going to have some similar effect. It's really a big deal. I've written about it a number of times. You eliminate car insurance, you eliminate body shops, you eliminate traffic cops, you eliminate totaled cars, so you're going to sell fewer new cars. They're going to eliminating uh, damaged cars and collisions. You're going to sell dramatically fewer car parts. So there's a whole lot of industries. At parking lots, uh, the cars will become valet parking, and they'll go to some cheaper parking lot while you're doing whatever you're doing, and then you just call them to come get you. So parking lot business is going to be radically changed. Parking garages underneath office buildings are going to become, probably become useless for that purpose anyway. So that's a big deal. The anti-landlord laws that have happened since I was in the business. When I first got into business, I did something in, in Corsicana, Texas, that the tenants very much appreciated. I installed smoke detectors and peepholes in the doors. And everybody thought that was really nice. And I was proud of myself for doing it. Nowadays, you can't make a decision like that. That's already been made by a bunch of politicians who beaten their chest taking credit for it, painting you as the bad guy. So I used to make decisions on my buildings. Nowadays, all you do as a landlord, a residential landlord, is comply, comply, comply with the decisions made by politicians and bureaucrats. And I think every year the tenant groups get together with the state legislators and say, here's our new list for this year of what we want. And they get it. So I think there came a point in a lot of states, maybe most states, where the apartment business became very unattractive. It's also, I think, that I read somewhere the residential landlords get sued more than any other category of business. And I got sued. And it doesn't matter how good of a guy you are, how good of a manager you are, you're going to get sued. And furthermore, if you get sued enough times, you're going to lose some of them. Again, it doesn't matter how good a guy you are. Yeah. And I find that's the most difficulty with owners that I deal with that own apartments. I mean, the people living in them have the most rights out of all commercial real estate or investment real estate because, you know, they can sit in there until you get evicted. It's a minimum of 30 days, right? Not even close. Yeah. If you own a mini warehouse, which is the same tenants as, a, as live in your apartment building, I don't know the exact rules, but you can bounce those suckers in 30 days and confiscate their stuff. Right. Yeah. And a similar, I used to manage office buildings and industrial buildings when I was a property manager. And the laws are quite phenomenal. Matter of fact, the residential apartment laws in Texas were wonderful when I was there. If you didn't pay your rent on the first, we served you an eviction notice, a three-day eviction notice on the second. 
we also changed the locks on your apartment and we had to give you a key to the new one, but you had to come to our office to get it. And we would cut off your utilities where the owner pays. And in my last two buildings, I paid the uh, utilities in both, the heating and air conditioning and electric and all. So we were allowed to cut off your utilities and we could go into your apartment with our key and confiscate your TV and stereo and computers and stuff like that. Not a workman's tools, but uh, luxury appliances. So that was a Texas law back when I got out of the business there. And that was pretty phenomenal. But here's a big change I made over the years that your readers should probably be interested in. Actually, I started with duplex. My first one was a duplex. My second one was a triplex. Then I bought another duplex. My girlfriend uh, bought a duplex. And then we bought a single family house. But I felt like I was small time buying duplexes and triplexes. I wanted to be a big shot, you know, commercial, you know, own apartment complexes. So I bought the 12 unit, which was actually, I think, two houses had been converted. They added onto the back of it. But that made me feel a little better. And I had a resident manager for the first time. But then in Texas, I bought 36-unit apartment complex that was built to be an apartment complex. It wasn't some house converted to a duplex in the 40s. And then in Dallas and DeSoto, Texas and Fort Worth, I bought the 25-unit and the uh, 33-unit. And I had swimming pools at two of them. So then I felt like a big shot. However, these anti-landlord laws I'm talking about, they're mainly owned at apartment owners, aimed at apartment owners, not at duplex owners and single-family rental house owners. Because if politicians want to pass a law, they need to piss off as few people as possible in the process. So the political economics of going after landlords of big apartment buildings are very attractive. But the political economics of going after owners of single-family rental houses and duplexes are not attractive. Because there's like, for every duplex tenant, there's a half a landlord. Whereas uh, for every 36 units, there's only one thirty-sixth of a landlord. So most of the adverse laws, maybe not most, a large percentage of the adverse laws against uh, landlords do not apply to single-family rental house owners or to duplex owners and triplex owners and so forth. So, And I have written and spoken in, in recent years about the tremendous benefits of single-family compared to apartment buildings or commercial buildings. You've got protection against creditors, like in Texas and Florida and uh, several other states. You can go bankrupt and keep all your equity in your house. And the limit is like one acre for an urban area house and like 350 acres for a rural area house. John Connolly went bankrupt to the governor of Texas, and he got to keep 350-acre ranch with a mansion on it. So that's pretty cool. And in, in most states, you get some kind of a creditor protection deal. Here in California, if you buy a house with a, a owner-occupied house with a conventional purchase money mortgage, there's an anti-deficiency judgment statute, which basically makes the mortgage non-recourse. So you can lose your equity, but they can't come after other assets or income. Oh. And then you've got tax laws, federal income tax laws that are favorable to houses more so than apartments. The rent control laws usually exempt to houses and duplexes and so forth. And there's pension laws. There's all kinds of laws that are very favorable. And the finance, infinitely more favorable. You buy some kind of an income property now, you're lucky to get a five or seven year loan. With single family and duplexes and so forth, you can get 30-year fixed rate, no prepayment penalty. So the benefits of single family, legal benefits, financing benefits, knowledge of the building. You know, I when you get into apartment buildings, if you're a homeowner and a duplex owner, the duplex is essentially the same as the home in terms of the, the physical structure and all that. You start owning, and I also managed apartment buildings. I didn't own a 208-unit building and a 75-unit building. You get into those buildings, you have a building, one building, or maybe down the basement, you got these things look like locomotives, and they are the boilers for the uh, heating system for the whole building. 
And then you have other locomotives that are the air conditioner system. That's a whole specialty. And then you get a lot of flat roofs when you start getting into uh, bigger buildings. And that's a, a very tricky business. So the commercial business that I wanted to get in so I could be a big shot is very unfavored under most laws and the all kinds of laws, not just tax laws. The single family and the duplexes are easy to finance, very liquid, easy to sell, easy to refinance. The economics are not as attractive in terms of the uh, price in relation to the rent. But you got to be a little nutty to be switching into the uh, apartment business nowadays where you have all these onerous laws and lawsuits and so forth. Yeah. So if you could do it all over again, looking back, I mean, I did an article recently about, suppose I just kept the buildings that I bought in New Jersey. Right. And I looked up, you can look up on Zillow and all that, what they're worth now. One of them doesn't exist anymore, the 12 unit, but you could get a feel for what it would be worth if it was still there. And then my first duplex is now single family. Well, I paid 14. I think that's worth 330, 330 or something. And I added it all up. First off, they'd all be free and clear now if I'd kept them. Uh, secondly, it would have been a couple, two, $3 million, I think. And I would have eliminated all the transaction costs, the capital gains taxes, all that stuff. So if I had just kept the 20 units, when I left New Jersey, the exchange, I was getting rid of 20 units. If I had just kept the 20 units, that would have turned into more money now. By the same token, had I exchanged into California instead of Texas and kept those buildings, I probably would have had even more money, even though I would have had to buy smaller buildings in California because of the unfavorable 14 times gross nonsense. But California, my house where I am right now, we paid uh, about 400 counting the landscaping and the fencing and all that in 83. And one of my college classmates from West Point, he bought a similar house in San Francisco, like the same month, same price. And mine is now worth something like a million seven. And he just sold his for $4 million because he's more in Silicon Valley than I am. So California was a great place to... Uh, own buildings in spite of the, it's unattractive to landlords in general and the prices are high. On the other hand, what happened to me in Texas, where I lost the 750, is they built a whole bunch of new apartment buildings. You can't build an apartment building in California. You know, there'll be people with knives, uh, pitchforks and torches out in front of your house if you, you try to build an apartment building. So you're protected from competition in California, which is immoral and crazy and self-destructive to the people who out here who do this, but that's the way it is. And it's, it turned out that was a more important variable than the 14 times gross, uh, four times gross thing. Yeah. It's basically that people can't come in there and build. Is it what you're talking about being the more important variable? Very hard to build an apartment building in California. Uh, whereas in Texas, you see all these soybean fields mm. out around the town where you are. It's like uh, rain, uh, mushroom popping up after rain. They go on a tear of putting apartment buildings up there. There'll be apartment buildings as far as the eye can see. They did that right around my Fort Worth building. This uh, was a one, it was the south side of the freeway that goes between Fort Worth and Dallas. On the north side, these buildings popped up as if it was World War II and it was a new army base or something. And and they're offering the tenants the opportunity to pick the carpet color, pick the drapes color, all that kind of stuff, and charging forty dollars more a month than I'm charging for a 1970 building with a coin-operated laundry. They've got washer dryers in each unit. So I would say. Uh, don't get this idea that you want to be a big shot and own commercial properties. Commercial properties have advantages and disadvantages, and single family and duplexes have advantages and disadvantages. But the legal bias and the, the financial industry bias in favor of single family is so enormous that you got to think twice or three times before you start leaving all those benefits behind. I've told people recently, 
maybe what you should do as a real estate investor is buy a home. You buy an owner-occupied single-family house when you're young, which is pretty easy to do. They get all the first-time home buyer things and the FHA 3.75% down and the VA nothing down and the private mortgage insurance and 30-year fixed and no prepayment penalty, all that good stuff. And then as your income goes up from whatever you do for a living and as your equity goes up, move up to not a bigger place. A lot of people, they make the mistake of getting big, big, big to the point where the house is a job. But buy a more expensive place. Buy the space you need, but buy a more expensive place. Mainly what you'll be getting is better location, not more size. And just keep doing that your whole life. And a typical person, if they did that wisely, they'd end up living in a penthouse in uh, New York City, Manhattan, or San Francisco or somewhere. Or if that's not their taste, they could, you know, wherever they live, it would be an extremely expensive, fabulous location. Right. And they would have never had tenants. They would have never been sued by their tenants. They would have never had resident managers. They would have had all the protections from creditors and favorable tax laws and favorable financing and relatively liquid asset. People say real estate's not liquid. A single family house is damn liquid. If you define liquidity as how fast you can get money, I could go today to a bank here locally and say, hey, I got a $1.7 million house. I got a 200000 something mortgage. I would like to borrow 100000 bucks. I'll walk out the door with 100000 hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty liquid. I would say that the, all of the equity in the house is not that liquid. The, the higher you go in the loan-to-value ratio, it gets starts getting a little bit less liquid, especially when you go above 80% loan-to-value. But my point is, I suppose I had to sell it to get all the equity out. How long would it take me to sell my house? I would guess 30 days. You know, I just bought one, a condo with my son. It would take about 30 days. So how illiquid is, is a single-family house when you could get all your money out in 30 days max? Mm-hmm. That's not very illiquid. So you would have liquidity. You would have protection from, you would not be a landlord. You would have the ta favorable tax laws, protection from creditor lawsuits, all that stuff. And you would eventually end up with maybe a two or $3 million house in a very desirable location, a good school district and all that. And you would have done without all the hassles and risks of real estate investment. Not, not all, but a great many of them. Well, yeah, no, I think those are some great pieces of advice. So and kind of wrapping up, I mean, is there anything else that looking back, because obviously we mostly talked about real estate. There is something that I, when I looked at your list of things that we might talk about, what I should have had in Texas is an ejection criteria. Fighter pilots are trained how to fly their plane when it works properly. And then they're trained what to do when it malfunctions. Some of the things when it malfunctions, like you get a fire you fly at a higher altitude and put the fire out from lack of oxygen. Some other things that maybe say, well, if this happens, you need to land. But there's a list of things that if they go wrong, you reach down and grab that handle in between your knees, ejection lever, and you yank it and you get exploded out of the plane because you're in big trouble. So whenever you invest in any asset, including all the different kinds of real estate, you need to recognize that you need to have ejection criteria. You need to have in your mind, if things get this bad and put numbers on it, if this gets bad and this gets this bad and this gets this bad, I'm yanking the ejection lever, which means you're going to put the property up for sale. I lost $750,000 in those two Texas buildings. Had I had ejection criteria, I would have still lost money, but not so much. I would have, got, I would have been out sooner. So in any investment, whether it's gold or real estate or uh, stock market, whatever, you need ejection criteria. And I did not realize things could get as bad as they did in the SNL crisis. And then we've since had the subprime crisis, which was similar. It was worse, actually. The SNL crisis was in Alaska, Texas, and Oklahoma. It didn't happen in my neighborhood here. But subprime crisis, that happened 
not only everywhere, it happened in uh, parts of Europe. Oh, definitely. Well, I guess with kind of wrapping up, like I said, people are interested. Like I said, we appreciate you sharing your story. But if they want to learn more about kind of what you write about today, I don't know if you want to touch on that quickly and the best way for them to contact you. My website's johntreed.com. I have 20 books on real estate investment. I have a blog where I put some stuff. I currently have a newsletter, but I'm going to terminate that in January. So I would refer people to my website. Uh, Some of the stuff there is free. And then I have the books. I plan to continue to write the books. Problem with the newsletter, my wife retired. So now she likes to travel and I like to travel with her. And newsletter has deadlines. When you write books, you don't have deadlines. You finish when you finish. So my life has changed so that the deadlines are no longer as something that I want to have to deal with the way they have been for like 40 some years now. Yeah, no, understandable. Well, uh, I said, yeah, we'll have your information in the show notes and appreciate you coming on and just sharing your story. And what I just depicted was not the blowing sunshine up your skirt thing. I made money in real estate. I'm glad I did it. But like everything else has advantages and disadvantages and risks and dangers. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, thank you, John. 